And so we learn the historical nature of this man. He's a prophet. His name is Jonah. He is the son of Amity. He is from the city of Gathafair. He preaches to a real king. He's a historical person. There's no other way to take him. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Having just finished our series in the Book of Romans, today we continue the first part of a new series of messages in the Book of Jonah. In this series, Pastor Carl will not only look at the historicity of this great book, but also its relevance for our lives today. Given the grand nature of Jonah and the sea monster, many attack its historicity. But Dr. Brogy points out that it is much more than just some fish tail. Now, think about it, because people think very superficially, even evangelical Christians sometimes, about the book of Jonah. Let me give you a pop quiz. Fill in the blank with the first answer that comes to your mind. Zacharias climbed the sycamore tree. Adam and Eve. Oh, this is really weak. Adam and Eve. All right, I think you're there. You're awake. All right. Noah built the... Ark. Elijah was up on top of Mount Carmel. Daniel was in the lion's den. Jonah and the whale. All right. So you see, part of the problem is with these biblical accounts is that we only study them on a surface level. We think of the sensational and we miss the finer points in the, in the process. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more to Zacchaeus than just climbing a sycamore tree. There's a whole lot more to Daniel than being in the lion's den. There's a whole lot more to Noah than building a gigantic ark. And there's a whole lot more to Jonah than just being captured and protected and preserved in a great fish the King James says, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what I want you to see this morning is that when we think of Jonah, very often we just think of Jonah and the whale. But this is more than a fish story. In fact, it's not a fish story. It is a fish story, but it's not a fish story, at least maybe the way people represent it today. Some say it's just a piece of fiction. It's a fish tale. Just like the one you told about the fish you missed, right? No, this is not some fish tale. This is real history. And we're going to see that in Christ's mind, it's important history because he is going to link his own death and resurrection to this particular book. For another group of people who have problems with the miraculous, they don't always want to come right out and as the pastor of a church just say, well, this is fiction. So somewhat stealthily, they say, well, this is a parable, that this is um, some spiritual lesson that we can take and apply to our life. It's no different, they would say, than the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's, it's a story with a, mor with a moral truth behind it. Well, um, we would be quick to say that there are parabolic portions in the Old Testament, not a lot, but there are some. We studied one uh, since we finished James, if you remember, Nathan the prophet went and, and uh, preached to King David about uh, the rich man who took a poor man's ewe and barbecued him, and he said, you're the man. That was a parable with a message behind it. And they said, well, that's true with Jonah. It's just a legend, but it's a legend with a message. 
Again, the, the problem with that is when you study parables in Scripture, there's a certain characteristic of parabolic uh, literature that this book certainly does not have. Um, it doesn't have any of those characteristics. Now, there's a third view. It's not the mythological view. It's not the parabolic view. It's the allegorical view. They say, well, this is a book of allegory. Now, how do they come to that? Because the word Jonah, Yonah in Hebrew, is the word for his name means dove. And in two places, once in the Psalms and once in the book of Hosea, Yonah, dove, is a reference to the people of Israel. And so they would say, therefore, Jonah is symbolic of the people of Israel. He was not an actual, literal, historical person, but he was a person who was symbolic of Israel and that there's deeper meaning uh, behind the story. And so they would say, just as Israel say, was to be a light to the nations, a witness to the Gentiles, even so Jonah was to be a light to the people of Nineveh. They would say, just as uh, Israel failed in her witness to the Gentile nations, even so, initially, Jonah failed in his witness to the Ninevites. Uh, they would say that when Jonah ended up captive in the belly of a great fish, even so, the people of Israel ended up captive under the Babylonians. Um, they would reason further that just as Jonah is regurgitated and delivered back to the place God wants him, at the end of 70 years, uh, the people who've been carried off by the Babylonians, they end up back in the land of Israel. Now, here's the challenge with that view. Um, there are certainly times in Scripture, by the way, where God gives typology. And so that's kind of what they've done. They've taken an allegory, and they might even say it's a prophetic allegory, that it's a type of sorts. The problem with that, and again, allegory is not foreign to the Bible. There's one allegory in the New Testament found in Galatians, and there are six allegories that are found in the Old Testament. But allegory is represented as allegory. Like in Galatians, Paul says, this is an allegory. So you can't just take any passage of Scripture and say, well, let me tell you what it really means and give the deeper meaning behind it. No, there are certainly prophetic types in the Scripture, but with every prophetic type in the Scripture, it's identified as such. And it's based on a literal historical event that took place. For instance, we often describe Abraham offering Isaac up there on top of Mount Moriah as a, as a type of Christ. That just as Abraham gave his uniquely begotten son, God so loved the world, he gave his uniquely begotten son. Is that true? Well, yes, it is. Why do we know that? Because in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham offering Yitzhak is indeed a type. But it was a real historical event that that type was based on, just like Boaz was married to Ruth, and he becomes a kinsman redeemer. He is a real historical person married to a real historical woman who becomes an illustration of what the Lord Jesus wants to do. But in order to escape the miraculous, they just say, well, this is an allegory. And there are many problems with that. One, with the typologies that we have, even if you want to call them an allegory, everyone that we do have in Scripture, uh, all the typologies, it's based on a historical event, number one, and, and that's important. Number two, God gave language to communicate. Uh, he gave us language so we can understand it. 
And by the way, their so-called allegory falls apart because when they say, well, uh, Jonah, you know, he's captured by a great fish and then he's spit out. And so Israel is, uh, is captured by the Babylonians and then brought back. Well, number one, he ministers to the northern kingdom. It's the southern kingdom that's carried away by the Babylonians. But the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he disguises himself as an angel of light, so don't his ministers, so don't his pastors. And one of the things that you often want to do when you find a new church is find out what they believe about the miraculous. Do they believe, for instance, Genesis 1 through 11 is historical? Or do they believe it's just a cute little parables to teach us spiritual messages. The Broadman commentary, which was kind of a standard commentary for the Southern Baptists, in the first edition, uh, they said Genesis 1 through 11 didn't actually happen. There, was just, there were just parables to teach us spiritual lessons. Well, when God's men got in charge, they rewrote the Broadman commentary, and they went with the historical Jewish view and the historical Christian view that Genesis 1 through 11 is history. You want to ask a pastor, do you believe Jonah was a real person, swallowed by a real fish, regurgitated up on a real piece of real estate, that he preached to a real group of people, or do you think he was just a fairy tale? Probe. Ask specifically. It's important. And so, number one, these reasons are silly because they go against what we know to be true of Scripture. So let me give you a fourth point of view of how I think you should take the book of Jonah. I think it's the only correct way to take it, and it's what I call the historical view. The historical view. And uh, in first, as I already mentioned, God gave language to communicate. If I tell you, well, after church today, I'm going to go to a seafood restaurant and enjoy some fish. You're not going to say, well, what the pastor really meant was he's going to go to the beach and he's going to go fishing and catch some fish. No, I meant what I said. I said what I meant. And God's word is no different. He says plainly what he means. You say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, how do you know how to interpret the Bible? It's very simple. God left within the Scriptures how to interpret the Scriptures. For instance, when we studied the prophet Daniel, he's reading this prophet by the name of Jeremiah, the 25th chapter. And he's thinking, we've been up here in Babylon a while. I wonder how long. He goes, oh, 70 years. How did he understand that prophecy? Plain value. Plain face value. When you see the New Testament either the Lord Jesus or his apostles intersecting either with each other or with the Old Testament, how do they interpret it? Just the plain, literal interpretation. And, and I say literal with a sense of caution because sometimes when you say you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, the unbeliever can misunderstand it. When we say a literal interpretation, that was the historical way in which to describe the approach to the Scripture. I think maybe today a better way would be a plain interpretation or the historical grammatical interpretation. When we say a literal interpretation, we're not discounting that there are symbols and that there are figures of speech. 
But as we studied in the Revelation, we try to understand what the symbol means. How do you know what it means? Scripture interprets Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And when you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe it. And so when God calls this great red dragon, we say, well, who is the great red dragon? Well, he interprets it for us. It's the devil. So we take the symbol, we understand what it literally means, and then we embrace it at face value. Uh, a second reason for not interpreting uh, it as an allegory or as a parable or as a fairy tale is, again, none of the records that we have in the Scripture and outside of the Scripture understand it that way. For instance, if you read Jewish literature, to this day, every single Orthodox Jew, now there are some other groups of Judaism that are just, I guess they're Jewish in name only. Some of them even call themselves atheists, but I'm a Reformed Jew or I'm a conservative Jew. But the Orthodox Jew who takes the Bible at face value, and someday there's going to be a huge number of Orthodox Jews who are going to be one to Jesus. God's going to use 144,000 Jews to preach the gospel, to finish the great commission that we've been trying to do to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It will happen during the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. But every Orthodox Jew believes the book of Jonah to be an actual historical event. In addition, when you come to the church fathers, the church fathers is that generation of people who lived after the apostles died. And they left us some huge amount of writings. And there's the early church fathers, the late church fathers. How did they view the book of Jonah? As history, as actual, as literal, in fact, for 1,900 years virtually, there was one view. But remember, in the 19th century, the seeds of Charles Darwin and others were being sown, a denial that there's a created God. Well, if you didn't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, if you don't believe that God created the plants, then how can you believe that God created um, you know, a great fish in which to encompass Jonah? And so the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. But why is it that they do not want to embrace the plain reading of this book and other books of the Bible? Because they don't like its implications. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, a natural man does not receive or accept or embrace the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Now, apart from the grace of God opening our hearts up to the truth of the gospel, when you ask an unbeliever to read and embrace the scripture, he doesn't have the spiritual equipment in which to do it. Until you have a birth from above and you are indwelt by the spirit of God and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, you do not have the equipment to embrace scripture. It's like asking a blind man to judge a, an art contest or a deaf man to evaluate a music recital. He doesn't have the equipment. And many times, of course, he doesn't like the implications. So people ask me, well, do you, uh, do you interpret the Bible symbolically or literally? And I say, well, yes. Uh, I, I interpret it literally, and I interpret symbols, and then once I understand the symbol, I apply it literally. So let me give you um, three reasons why I reject the first three approaches, the parabolic, the mythological, or the allegorical approach. And again, the first one I've already mentioned is that for the first 1,900 years of church history, there was only one view. 
Jonah was a real historical person. And in Jewish Midrash, Midrash describes like Jewish commentary. Some of it's kind of weird, but still they always embraced Jonah as a real historical event. And so he's described in those terms. He's described as a historical person. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse 1, 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings 14, 25. Maybe you have it in your uh, notes out in the marginal reference, and you can just circuit, circle it. But next to verse 1 of Jonah 1, 1, put 2 Kings 14, 25. Let me read it to you. We are told in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So here's this wicked king. Remember, northern kingdom, 20 kings, all wicked. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He rules in Israel. Remember, the capital is Samaria. He re-engaged the people not to go to Jerusalem as God dictated, where God's priests were, where God's orthodox way of worshiping him was still being followed. No, he, he, he had them worship in a different center, and so the Samaritan woman. And so notice further, you wrote out next to verse 1, verse 25, notice. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of gath Hefer. Now, this brief record gives us some very important historical information about Jonah. Number one, he preached to this man by the name of Jeroboam, and it was a rather pleasant message. You know, everything that prophets preached was not always hard to listen to. Some of it was a blessing. And he said to Jeroboam, this wicked king, God's actually going to expand the borders and bless you and your people. You say, why would God do that to a wicked king? Because God loved him and wanted him to repent. Do you remember what Paul wrote in the New Testament in Romans 2 verse 4? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness Intolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. This verse tells us that the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience of God should lead us to repentance. The blessings that God brings on a person's life gives you space, not an excuse, but space to repent. You see, many times we think, well, you know, everything's good with me and God. I mean, the bank account's full, nobody's sick, I got a good job. God is obviously approving my life, not necessarily. Very often, God brings the blessings on your life to show you of your need to repent. And here's Jeroboam. He, he should have thought, man, I know I'm going against the God of Israel. I'm worshiping all these false gods. But here his prophet comes, Jonah, and he tells me, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he's going to bless me and expand my borders. He should have repented, but he didn't. So it doesn't necessarily mean that God is blessing you, that everything is right. Now, sometimes... God will let the bottom fall out to get your attention. But not always. Sometimes God uses blessings to get our attention. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. Um, but listen further to what Paul says in the next verse. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So to presume on God's blessing 
It's to be rebellious in nature. And he says, you're storing up. Jesus told the same word, to store up treasure in heaven. Speaking to those who are saved, that we're to lay up treasure in heaven so that when we get there and there's the uh, judgment of the just, he will reward us accordingly. Salvation is a gift. It's by grace. And then when you avail yourself to that grace as a saved person and God ministers through you and to you, he allows you to lay up treasure in heaven. Well, in the same way, these unbelieving Jews in Paul's day we're storing up wrath in the day of wrath. Hell is a terrible place for anyone who goes. But it's not the same for everyone who goes. Somehow, in the perfect sovereignty of God and in his perfect justice, he will mete out wrath accordingly. By the way, again, there's a lot of hard things that a preacher has to preach. Jonah's going to go and preach and remind them that the behavior of the Ninevites is like a stench in the nostrils of God. But sometimes a preacher can come and give of the great blessings of God. But in the midst of our blessing, we need to be careful who the blesser is. Do you remember Moses just before he dies up there on top of Mount Nebo? He gathers all of Israel and he gives them that one final message. It's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And listen to what God said through him. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and you cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened in Israel's history. God blessed this King Jeroboam. He expanded their borders. They were number one. But he didn't repent. God blessed America. I'm not saying that we're a nation without problems. But God blessed this nation like few nations in the history of man. More missionaries have been sent from the United States of America than any other single nation in the history of man. And if you're God Almighty and you want to get the best news of your son out to the world, you're going to bless a nation that's going to take that seriously. And in the early days, America was a difficult place to live. And the people cried out for survival and God answered and blessed them. And now we're a nation of abundance. And so we've gone from approximately 80% of Americans gathering on the Lord's day to 20%. Why? Because we've forgotten God. Yes, we have a president who's religious, who goes to mass every week, who put his hand on God's holy war word and swore to defend this nation. And yet he who acknowledges God as the same president who is in favor of abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism and like so many other politicians, all kinds of wickedness because we have forgotten the living God. 
So here's a real historical person. His name is Jonah, the son of Amity. He is from a place called gath Hefer. gath Hefer is three miles from Nazareth. You know Nazareth, the place where Jesus was brought to shortly after his birth and was raised there and preached there. Well, he's preaching this prophet. He was raised in the same neighborhood. So he's talking about a real person who ministered to real people, to a real king who's from a real city called gath Affair. So you really have to stretch and twist and ignore the divine inspiration of Scripture and to say that the Bible's lying to say that this man was not a real historical person. In fact, 2 Kings reminds us that because of their disobedience, what does God later do? He rises up a couple more prophets to take the message that Jonah gave Like the prophet Hosea, we call it the book of endless love, and God basically says, how dare you? How dare you take my love and my kindness and ignore me? And then he raises up another prophet. His name is Amos, and his message is very simple. You rebel against the dictates of God Almighty, and I am going to judge you through the Assyrians. Now, keep that in mind because we're going to see that's very important as we work through the book of Jonah. And so we learn the historical nature of this man. He's a prophet. His name is Jonah. He is the son of Amity. He is from the city of gath He preaches to a real king. He's a historical person. There's no other way to take him. Now, There's a second reason why the book of Jonah bears the stamp of historicity. And again, it's the fact that those closest to the writing understood it that way. The church fathers and again, those Jewish commentators. That's how they understand it. But let me tell you why people don't want to accept it as history. It's because of the miraculous nature of this book. You read the book of Jonah. It's only 48 verses. You could read it in a short time. There's like more miracles per square inch than in few verses, in few books in all of the Bible. I mean, think about it. Here in the opening chapter, God hurls a great wind on the sea, Jonah 1.4. Then after the sailors are on board and they're casting lots, who's responsible for this in the providence of God, where does the lot fall to out of all the men on that ship? To Jonah. Then Jonah is cast into the sea, and instantly the sea stops its raging. Another miracle. And just about the time he's ready to drown, God sends one of his great submarines, and he, he, he takes his prophet. And for three days and three nights, he's not eaten up by the gastric juices of this huge animal, but he's preserved. God commands the fish to spit Jonah out on dry land. He preaches the shortest sermon recorded just about anywhere in the Bible. And what happens? The greatest revival in history takes place. If you remember, after they repent, he's, God sends this scorching hot wind, and, and he's kind of moaning and groaning, and then God supernaturally makes this plant, comes up overnight and gives him some shade, and he's enamored with the plant because God's going to teach him some important lessons, so he sends a worm to eat the plant, and the plant dies, and he's moaning and groaning, and he begs that it would be better to die than to live. I mean, miracle after miracle, God's fingerprints are all the way through this inspired book. 
Jesus himself called Jonah a prophet who spent three days in the belly of a great fish. Consequently, Jonah was not a fictional character. He was as much flesh and blood as you or I. If you would like a copy of today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH1. You can also visit searchthescriptures.org and listen to the messages in the book of Romans if you perhaps missed any of those. Tomorrow we'll continue to crack open the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.